Well, I do want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is considered by many to be one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament. And so I hope that that will give you reason to to think carefully about what's there. And uh, I do hope that that won't obscure the, the goodness and the hope that is present in Romans chapter 9. Now, I want to begin this morning by taking a survey. And so, I have to be really careful about the way that I'm going to ask the survey questions because I wouldn't want you to, to misunderstand the survey. I want it to be simple, straightforward survey. Okay? And so, I want you to, to answer affirmatively by raising your hand and in the negative by keeping your hand on your lap. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is, I'm going to ask you some questions, and I, I don't want, I'm not going to ask you if, in fact, you fully believe what I'm asking. But the question is rather going to be, wouldn't you like this to be true? It's a different than believing it. Okay, believing it is, I'm certain it's true, my absolute hope is in it. But I just want to ask you the, the question, wouldn't you like this to be true? So, there's going to be a few of these, so I want you just to think carefully, alright? Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't you like it to be true that there's no condemnation? Anybody like that to be true? That would be great if that was true, Right? Okay, how about this? Romans 8.15 You receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, Father means in Aramaic, Daddy. It's an affectionate term that's you know, one you would call in your household when you fall and skin your knee or when you need something, you would cry out to your dad or your Abba. Wouldn't you like it to be true that you could have the relationship with the God of the universe so that you could be that intimate with Him? Would you like that to be true? Oh, I'd like that to be true. Or how about this? From verse 18, I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed in us. I'm a, some people can't wait to get their hands up. Okay, I mean, I'm hoping, I, I, I'm hoping it's going to be better, right, in the next life. Do you want that to be true? That heaven is better than here? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Or how about this in verse 26? It says, The Spirit helps in our weakness. And the Spirit Himself intercedes or prays for us. God the Holy Spirit helps you when you're weak. Wouldn't that be nice if that were true? The Holy Spirit helps you when you're weak? Would you, are you hoping for that? I'd really like that. Or then there's this, right? One that you probably have heard or thought about before. And we know that all those who love God, for, for them all things work together for good. Would you like the assurance for sure that all things work together for good? Wouldn't that be nice if that were true? Yeah, I'd kind of like that. You're thinking, when is he going to stop, right? <laughs> Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through Him who loves us. Isn't it great to be, wouldn't it be great to be loved so that you share in the victory of Jesus we sung about already? Wouldn't that be great if that were true? 
Yeah, that'd be really nice if that were true, wouldn't it? Then there's this. He says, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wouldn't it be nice if there was absolutely nothing in all of creation that could separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Wouldn't you like that if that were true? Yeah, I would like that if that were true too. Now, the reason I ask it that way is because we don't always believe it's true, right? But it sure would be nice if it was. And so, what is it that would make that true? What is it that would assure you that yes, in fact, those promises that are so, so good that your heart just longs for them to be true, what is it that would ensure that those are true? That's the question we're going to take up in Romans chapter 9. I'm going to give you the summary answer first, and then we'll look at the whole passage. The summary answer is this. You can be certain that those promises are good because it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Your certainty, the certainty of your faith in the promises of God rest in God, not in yourself. That's part of what makes the news so good, right? That's what Romans 9 is about. Because what's happened is that this whole sequence or series of promises that I just highlighted have appeared so astounding to people, so unbelievable that they just are saying, how can this be true? But it isn't just that they're saying, how can this be true? They're saying, how can this be true? Especially if it is true and God made similar promises earlier to Israel that these promises seem to negate. That these promises seem to water down or make insignificant. That's the question. How can these things be true? How can God's Word be true to the church, to believers, to those who trust in Jesus, if in fact He made really good promises to Israel in the Old Testament and the promises to the church seem like they're making those promises obsolete? That's the question we're taking up. In Romans chapter 9. So, I mean, there's no small question because you've already voted. You want those things to be true. In fact, they're non negotiables. If those things aren't true, where are we, right? What are we doing here? So, let's, let's read the text beginning in verse 6. <clears throat> and notice. Notice where it starts. It starts with the very question we're talking about. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. 
For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had not done either good or bad, or had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of His works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. So there you have Paul's answer to the question, How can these promises be true? The answer to his question, has the Word of God failed? Was God unable for some reason to overcome the obstinance of the children of Israel? And so, then he had to sort of scrap all that and make a church. Has the Word of God failed? That's what's, that's what's at stake. And it's a, it's a problem both for Israel and it's a problem for the church. It's a problem for Israel. Well, if the Word of God's failed to Israel, that's a problem. But to the church, this, he takes it up in Romans 9 because if God has failed Israel, what makes the church have any confidence in the promise of God either? So that's why he takes it up here. His answer then is that you have, to some degree, you have misunderstood the promise. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You're saying, that's a head-scratcher. It doesn't even make sense. He explains it then in the next section. Not all children of Abraham, or not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, being physically descended from Abraham doesn't ensure that you are going to participate in the promise of God. In other words, the promise was not necessarily to every individual who has the same DNA or shares part of the DNA of Adam, or excuse me, of Abraham. That wasn't the promise 
though many misunderstood it in that way. And he says, for instance, let me let me point this out for you. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Now, you'll remember that Abraham and Sarah didn't have any children until they were really pretty old. And in fact, Sarah said to Abraham, hey, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to have any children. God promised you children, so why don't you take my uh, servant girl and have children by her? And he did. His name was Ishmael. And so Abraham had a son named Ishmael before he had a son named Isaac. And the point here in Romans 9 is that it is through Isaac, not Ishmael, that the offspring or the the blessing comes. So right out the gate, he points out that yes, there was a promise to Abraham, but not all, in fact, of the first two, only 50% participated in the promise. And then Abraham had other children later that were not part of the promise after Sarah died. So it's only through Isaac your offspring will be named. So the promise is good. The the promise is defined differently than many people have defined it. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So there is a, a line of promise here that, that goes from Abraham to Isaac. And that is how people are included in the promise, he says. But it's not just that. Isaac had some children. Okay, this, is a, this is still a promise about Isaac. And then he goes, Isaac and his wife Rebekah were childless for a long time. And not, then he says, not only was it the promise came through Isaac, not Ishmael. Rebecca conceived children, twins, by one man. And they were not all part of the promise either. And this is why. This is really important how he says this. Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stop here because we're about to start to get in onto territory that causes people all kinds of problems, you know, trying to figure out what God means when He talks about election. And, I still haven't decided how much I'm going to say about the problems. But I am going to say, if he wanted to take up the problems and answer the problems, he could. But as you read this, I want you to notice how hard he works at solving whatever mystery is here. In answering whatever objections are here. He doesn't do it at all. That's the surprising thing. So I'm tempted not to do it at all. I might break my own rule. But 
That's what He does. He just says, you know what? Have whatever problems you want. The choice of God of Jacob over Esau was God's choice. It was God's choice. See, that, that's really interesting because we, we have... We have um, works and merit so deeply entrenched within us that we can't really accept that. We'll look at these two examples and we'll say, well, of course God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Because Isaac was a child with his wife. And Ishmael is a child with his mistress. That, no, that's not going to be the promise. Promise over here because he did everything right. If you go there, okay, if you go there, that exposes the fact that you really believe that God accepts people by their merit. So he brings in the second example of uh, Jacob and Esau. Because, and he does so then because I, you know, there could be somebody, if it's not you, it's somebody else, who says, yes, you know, Isaac somehow deserved it because Abraham did things right there. But he says, listen, here. These twins, before they were born, they weren't even born yet. And God selected one. And they had done nothing good or bad. He goes out of his way to say the opposite of what so many say is, well, God looked forward in time and saw what they were going to do. He's saying just the opposite. It is not about that. Okay, Just so you know, it isn't about that. And then he says, in order that God's purpose of election might stand. And it's probably best translated God's purpose in election or by electing. The purpose of God is what's at stake. Not so much the election, but God's purpose. What purpose would that be? The purpose of God to keep His promises. In order to make sure that God keeps His promises, this is why He did it this way. Which goes back to answer the question in the place I started, wouldn't you like this to be true? Well, how is it going to be true? It's going to be true because God wills it to be true. Because God makes it true, not because we will it or because we act on it. It is God's purpose to keep His promise. That is why then that He elects in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Just to make sure that you didn't miss it before, he says it again. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. This is not because the the boys did anything right. It's not because the parents did anything right. It's simply because God Wanted it to be that way. Period. That's all. 
Now, it's really possible to be, for this to make you uncomfortable. For this to raise a bunch of questions in your mind. And that's fine. Because his point here is not to answer your questions. He actually takes that up next week, so you may want to come back. But, here he simply says, this is how it is. And it being this way ensures that God's purposes will be fulfilled. That's what he's trying to do. So, Rebecca was told before the children were born, before they did anything good or bad, the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. Now, one of the things that you need to know is that that's not how it works. It works that the younger serves the older. It works that the blessing of the family falls on the older. It works that the birthright of the family, that the double portion of the inheritance falls to the older. Not the younger. There should be an objection right here. God's purpose is such that it doesn't work that way. It's not supposed to work that way. There you go. Right? That's probably your objection to election too, right? It's not supposed to work that way. Some of what he wants to communicate right here is that the least likely was chosen. That the least deserving was chosen. In other words, to those who were chosen, to Jacob and his descendants, he wants to communicate or at least to remind them that you ought to be humble. Because you didn't deserve this. In the natural order of things, you would be left out. And so, he wants to confirm the older will serve the younger. And this, this has some implications then you know, because there was this conflict between, you know, Jews and Gentiles in this church. There, they, there's, you might say they were 50-50 in the church and they were taking various turns saying, you know, we're better. No, we're better. Our position's more biblical or godly. We're, you know, whatever, whatever conflict they were having in the church. This is a word not just to the Jews to say, listen, you were chosen even though you were less deserving and least likely, there's also a position in which, and we're going to see this in the upcoming weeks, the Gentiles were the last chosen. They were the last ones included in the promise. And so, if the Jews should be humbled, the Gentiles should be humbled even more. And so, the point of bringing up election to the church here is for him to say, listen, chill. You're not all that. Just relax and be grateful that God exercised His will to rescue you.
That's what he's trying to do in this, is to get people to not think quite so highly of themselves. And the first thing he has to do, and I think this is a reason that he goes to what for many of us is the hardest doctrine that we have ever thought about, election. The reason he goes straight there is so that we esteem God more highly than we esteem ourselves. And then we go to esteeming other people more highly than ourselves. That's where he wants people to go with the doctrine of election. And so that's his first pass at cementing for them the certainty that the promise of God is good, both in the Old Testament to Israel and in Romans chapter 8 to the church, which is what we really in our heart of hearts hope will be the case. He makes another pass at it now with a second question. He started off by saying, has the Word of God failed? Now he says, is there injustice on God's part? Namely, I'm not sure I like this. That doesn't seem completely fair. Is God being unjust or unrighteous? Is God being wrong? Is God wrong to exercise His will on human beings to make sure that some receive the promise? Is God wrong for doing that? Then He answers Himself, by no means. For He says to Moses, okay, and this is what we read to start the service off, after, <laughs> after the Ten Commandments were given, after Moses came down from the mountain, after the golden calf, after the, the newly formed children of Israel had already forgotten about God, Moses went back up for a, a reprint of the Ten Commandments. And he uh, met God and God told him, I will make My goodness pass before you. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's reminder to Moses was the reminder that you and I all need. I'm God. You're not. Okay? Not with an attitude. I mean, don't please don't hear an attitude in there. They're just, God is in a different category than you and me. And my goal this morning is to have you thankful that that's the case. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Whatever electing grace we're talking about here with Jacob and Esau, with Isaac and Ishmael, with Jews and Gentiles, with you, is an act of God's mercy and compassion. Don't mistake it for anything else. It is His wisdom, His love, His power, his greatness that enables him to secure his promise 
to you and to me as an act of mercy. Okay, then here's, here is his punchline, right? This is his thesis statement. So then, it, it what it? The promises depend not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is a really strong statement because the very first question when we start talking about election is, in fact, most, most, most people put it in the same sentence, election and free will, right? Just going to say it. This addresses that. It is not about free will or exertion. It's not about what you do or what you even you know, think should happen or desire to happen. It depends on God who has mercy. Now think about this. Okay? I, I tried to be clear in my first question this morning. My first question, which was this. Not, do you believe this for sure? But rather, do you want it to be true? The reason that I ask those two different questions is, if I want it to be true, but I have a hard time believing it, why is that? I think one of the reasons that, that I have a hard time believing it is that deep down, buried maybe under layers of what I know I should say, is this dependence on myself. This dependence on how good am I really. You see, and I think, I think a lot of us know I'm not that good. I'm not good enough for it to depend on me. And at some place, we've got to come to grips with that. There is something fundamentally about me that keeps me from being absolutely confident. And what I want to say to you this morning is that that is true. But it doesn't depend on you. It depends on God who has mercy. That's where God wants it to rest always. So that you can come... It comes down to us saying, do I believe God or not? Is God good for it or not? Not am I good enough? Not have I done it right? Not have I said the right things or prayed the right prayers or done the, you know, enough good or hung in there long enough? It's just simply God has mercy. I mean, He is working at driving this home. I mean, he's just, he's just working hard so that you get away from this self-dependence. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, why are we bringing up Pharaoh? We're bringing up Pharaoh because God wants you to know that He is accomplishing His purpose. That God is working His will. For this very purpose I have raised you up. 
And again, I'm just going to say, if Paul, who was a Pharisee, who likely had you know, much if not all of the, of the Old Testament memorized, he could have said, well, Pharaoh hardened his heart first and then God came around and hardened it for good. And he, he didn't do that. He simply says, I am responsible for raising up Pharaoh for my purposes. What's his purpose? He's got two things. That I might show my power. And so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God wanted to show His power in the deliverance of His people. So that you and I might hope in God who delivers His people. So that it's dependent on Him, not on us. And so that His name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Which is His mercy. Not just to the, to the people of Israel whom He delivered from Pharaoh, but to the rest of the earth. Okay, this is part of the promise to Abraham. That even the nations would be blessed through Abraham. And so God is accomplishing His purpose. may not have been the way He thought it was, but God is keeping His promise. Even by raising up Pharaoh... And he says, so then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Now again, I mentioned already that it's easy to, I mean, it does say, the scripture does say Pharaoh hardened his heart. I mean, here it tells us God hardened his heart. Okay. The relationship between those two is not a matter of concern for uh, the writer of Romans. He simply wants you to know that God raised Pharaoh up. It was God's work. And he drops it there. Now, just in case you're, you're, you know, like getting a little, you know, uptight about this, which I can understand, right? Um, I want you to realize that your question is answered in verse 19. I'm not going to read it this morning, but if you're uptight about this, your answer is addressed in 19 and answered next week. So, you will want to come back as we talk about it next week. But I just want you to know that it is not unjust for God to harden Pharaoh's heart. He hardens whoever He wills. That's His point. And this hardening... I mean, for Pharaoh, for Pharaoh, there may have been some added juice. I'm just going to say, on Pharaoh, because I mean, God wanted His purpose to stand in delivering His people, right? He needed someone who was going to make sure that He hardened His heart absolutely, 100% to God. But the hardening work of God happens all the time. That's what's described in chapter one, where it says God turned them over. God turned them over. I mean, three times it says, God just delivered them. Let them be turned over to their own problems. To their own desires. And then he says in chapter 3, he said, there is none who seeks after God. There's not even one. God is, God is simply affirming what he said already in Romans that the human heart is 
comes pre-programmed against God. And you have to acknowledge that. So that the human heart does not naturally think good and happy and submissive thoughts to Almighty God. And so, we just need to be humbled and say He has mercy on whom He wills and He hardens whom He wills. May God receive glory for both. So what are you supposed to make of this? What do you make of like, like a sermon from Romans 9 on election? Right? What everyone you know, had in mind when they woke up this morning. Oh, if only I could hear a sermon on election this morning, I'd be all set. This is what you make of it. It is God's sovereign, uh, free choice to show mercy that makes His promises good. That's what you make of it. You make of it that the guarantee that you have from God is that He is actively choosing to keep His promise. Apart from your objections or mine. And so what you make of this is, you know what? I can submit myself to God. That God is God. That's what you get out of this. And He guarantees His promise. It's not of human will. It's not according to my effort. It is God who secures the promise. He is the one who gives the guarantee that there's no condemnation of Christ. That nothing can separate you from His love. That there, the glory which shall be revealed is so much better than the suffering of this present time. And on and on and on, it depends on God. That's the first thing you get of it. The second thing that you should get is the corollary to that, which is God wants you to be humble. God wants me to be humble. This is a humbling idea. That I am somehow out of control of my own destiny. This shakes me to my core. Because it's un-American. I just am uncomfortable letting God be God. And so I invite you to think more highly of God and relax about yourself. Because ultimately what will happen is, and especially if we go through Romans 9, then we will be encouraged to think more highly of other people and less highly of ourselves. And then in Romans 12 through 16, we're going to act that way. But ultimately, ultimately it begins by us being grateful that yes, in fact, God is God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we are humbled. We're humbled we don't understand how this works. We're humbled that we're not in the control we thought we might be. And Father, that is a good place for us.
would you be pleased to strengthen our trust in you and weaken our trust in ourselves so that we might, with the Scriptures, be glad that it's not by me who wills or my exertion, it's by God who shows mercy. May we throw ourselves again at your mercy and be full of faith and be thankful. In the name of Jesus, amen.